1: are quick to say, praise the Lord. But do we actually follow through with it? And how exactly are we supposed to praise the Lord? Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah returns to the 33rd Psalm, which actually explains how we should offer our praises to God. It's a holy how-to course coming up as David introduces the conclusion of his special message, The Anatomy of Praise.
0: We are so thankful that you joined us today. I hope you've come with an open heart and open mind. And uh, whatever your needs may be, whatever your situation may be, I have great confidence that the Word of God will speak into your heart today if you'll listen and follow. We're talking about praise. And you know, praise is not just an auditory response to God, not just a verbal response to God. Praise is... It's so overwhelming what it does. The Bible tells us that while praise goes to the throne of God and brings joy to his heart, it also changes the one who offers it. So don't turn away because you don't feel like you're into worship. Remember that these words are for you. And God says, if you want to get through the pandemic, if you want to get through life with all of its ups and downs, here's something you need to learn to do. And that's to praise God. As we learned yesterday, praise is not an option. It's a command. We'll have more of this in just a moment. Hey, this is the last week and the last day, the last few hours of our February teaching. And I am going to tell you what a joy it's been to offer up these messages that we chose just for you. Making Sense of It All has been a great series because it's all encouraging. It's all motivational to help you through these days. If you'd like to have the whole series on CD, it's available. And there's a study guide that goes with it that coordinates everything. You can find all of this information at davidjeremiah.org. There you will find it visually presented, and you can order it and have it shipped right to your own home. Also, this is the last day I can make available to you Rob Morgan's book on Romans eight twenty eight, twenty eight 28, words and 200 pages to describe them. Rob Morgan has done an incredible job opening up the meaning of this wonderful promise. Some feel the best promise in all of the Bible. If you haven't already sent your February gift, there's still time for you to do it today. And when you do that, ask for your copy of the book on Romans 8:28 God works all things together for your good. Well, here's part 2 of the Anatomy of Praise. Let's open our hearts to the word of God. Don't ever lose your respect for the word of God. I'll tell you something, this book changes lives. We see it every week in our baptistry testimonies. It's the word of God. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the very centermost part of your being. It cleanses. It convicts. It is the seed of God, his precious word. It is pure and it is powerful. Well, the psalmist goes on to say we should not only be grateful for the pure and powerful word of God, but continue to read in this psalm and you'll discover we're also to be thankful for his works. Praise him, first of all, for his providential work. Verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. That's what the psalm says. What is he saying? This is all a commentary on Proverbs nineteen twenty one. that goes like this. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that's what stands. Let me just share with you what this means as far as I can understand it. Let me unpack this just a moment. The psalmist is saying in the midst of all the chaos of our culture, in the midst of all of the changes that we're facing, and with the midst of all of the uncertainty that seems on the horizon of every one of our lives, in the midst of all of that stands the sure counsel of Almighty God who is in charge. And he has not gone on vacation. He is not sleeping. He has not turned his head. You say, well, what about all of the things that seem like there's so much chaos and God does not cause them, but behind them he still controls them. And ultimately, he is in charge. You could be a very fearful person right now if you wanted to be, and some people really are. Some people have a hard time sleeping at night for fear of what might happen in our world. You know, I'm not trying to be naive about all of the dangers that are around us and the problems that we could have, but I I don't fear that because my times are in his hands. I'm God's. He's mine. When God's done with me, he'll take me to a better place. You know, if everything falls apart down here, guess what? I get a promotion. Amen? Amen? That's what happens. I have a little saying in my Bible that goes like this. God's man in the center of God's will is immortal until God's through with him. And that's a wonderful truth, isn't it? To know that you're in the hands of Almighty God. As long as he wants you to be where you are doing what you're doing, You're in his hands, and you're immortal. Now, don't be crazy about that and be presumptuous. It's easy to be silly about that. If you jump off the top of a building without a parachute, it's over. You know? (laughs) But your times are in his hands. He's providential in your life. His counsel is from one generation to another. He never changes. Isn't that interesting? You know, change is going on in our culture right now so rapidly that there are whole institutes being set up to study the impact of it. It has an amazing impact on your life and mine. They tell us now that as CEOs, they have to make decisions in 15% of the time they used to have to make them 10 years ago. In other words, everything is squeezed into a shorter period of time and the pressure is overwhelming and the stress that puts on people. But you know what? God isn't in a hurry and God isn't stressed out and God's the same. His counsel endures. So what is the secret there, friends? Stay in touch with him. (laughs) Lock into him. Hang on to him. Because he's the one that will give you sanity in the midst of the insanity that we have in our world today. His word is pure. His word is powerful. And we praise him for his providential work. Not only that, but we praise him for his preserving work. And I've got to hurry here because I don't want to lose time in telling us how we're going to do this. Verse 12 says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen for his own inheritance. What is that saying? It's simply saying God is in the preserving work. He preserves nations. He's preserved our nation. I think we may be living on the edge of that preservation if we don't start doing some things differently than we have, but this is a nation under God, believe it or not. In God we trust, and I'm not ashamed to say that. We shouldn't be either. God has preserved us. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and God exalts a nation that is righteous, He preserves us by his power. What makes the American nation stand out? There's only one explanation. It's the presence of God. You say, well, that's not right. God would have particular interest in our nation. Well, it is right, because this nation was founded on the principles of God's Word. And as we continue to little by little get away from that, we can sense it's starting to unravel, isn't it? But it wasn't that way in the beginning. God preserved this nation, and blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. What other nations print, in God we trust on their money and on their monuments. We're the only nation that's doing that because God has been at the forefront of us in all that we do. He has an enduring, preserving work. But notice, he also has a protecting work, And, and this is a wonderful truth because he protects us. Verses 13 and follow. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling he looks. On all the inhabitants of the earth, he fashions their hearts individually and considers all their works. This section of the psalm presents the omniscience of God in striking terms. In his omniscience, he protects us. What is omniscience? It means God sees everything at all times. He knows everything. He is all-knowing, omni all, science to know. And if you read through this, you will see that the word see and look is there. In fact, some have looked at this psalm and said, this is the psalm of the eye. Because verse 13 says, the Lord sees all mankind. Verse 14 says, he watches all who live on the earth. Verse 15 says, he who forms the hearts of all considers everything they do. Verse 18 says, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. Let me just tell you something, friend. Whoever you are, wherever you are, you can't hide from God. God sees you. He sees us all. And most of the time, that should be an encouragement unless you're doing something you shouldn't and then you wish you could hide. But he sees you nonetheless. He's the omniscient God. But notice, not only does he see us in his protection, but he has the power to do something about it. The omniscience of God in this psalm is followed by the omnipotence of God. Once again, omnipotence means all-powerful, omni, all-potent, powerful. He's all-powerful. What good would it be if God could see you in the midst of your situation and not have any power to do anything about it? But notice what the scripture says. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. Mighty man is not delivered by great strength. Horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. In other words, don't put your hope in human exercises. Don't say, oh, we're safe. we got a great military, lots of money and implements. The Bible says here in the language of that day, don't put your trust in horses because they'll let you down. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. You know, our only hope of being protected is in God. We have to cast our lot with him. He sees us. He knows what's going on in our co- He's not taken by surprise by all this craziness we're going through right now, all this multiculturalism and political rightness and Nobody wants to say anything bad about anyone else, and there's no truth because everybody's truth is truth, whether it's your truth and my truth, and it cancels each other out, it's still truth. That's such absurdity, isn't it? Not, it's just absurd. Nobody would ever think like that. But you know, I, I'm not worried about that anymore. You know why? He sees it, and he's in charge. He's got his hand in all of this, and he's superintending the whole thing. He's an all-powerful God. So you praise him for his word, and you praise him for his works. Now here's the question. How do you praise him? I'm glad you asked. Because we're going to talk about that right now. Go back to the beginning of the psalm, and let's talk about the responses of praise and thanksgiving in verses 1 through 3. In the first three verses of this psalm, we are commanded to praise the Lord. Did you know that? This is a command. You say, well, Pastor, you have to understand, that's just not what I do. Well, you better get to doing it, because it's a command. It's a command. And first of all, we're to praise the Lord obediently. It's not possible to read the first three verses of this psalm without a clear understanding of the priority of worship. In fact, there are six different expressions in the first three verses that are used to call us to praise and thanksgiving. And all of these are in the tense of the imperative. They're commands. And they're not options. He didn't say, this is something you might want to try. No, this is a command of God. And I want you just to notice these. And if you mark down things in your Bible, these would be good to underline. Verse 1, rejoice. Verse 2, praise the Lord. Verse 2, make melody to him. Verse 3, sing to him. Verse 3, play skillfully. And verse 3, with a shout of joy. What about that don't we understand? God expects us to be people who respond out of gratitude to all of his word and his works. Now, sometimes we give the impression that praise and worship is optional. If we do not feel particularly gifted in music, for instance, we excuse ourselves and we defer to others. That is not possible. Not all of us can be in a choir, but all of us are responsible to worship God, and praise is a matter of obedience. So we're to praise him obediently. Number two, We're to praise the Lord beautifully. You would say, well, pastor, that takes me out of the picture. I mean, you don't want to hear how I praise the Lord. No, no, no. Look what God says about that. God's idea of beauty and ours is different. Notice what he says. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. It doesn't say rejoice in the Lord and praise from the gifted is beautiful, or praise from the vocally entertaining is beautiful. It says praise from the upright is beautiful. Here we have on the platform, over here on this side, someone whose life is a mess, who's living not at all for the Lord, but they have a beautiful voice, and they stand on the platform on Sunday, and they sing a song that brings us to our feet in applause. And over here on this side of the platform, we have a young person who is just so in love with God, but they don't have the ability. Their song isn't always in tune. And their voice isn't as powerful. And when they're finished, we yawn. (laughs) But up in heaven, it's upside down. This person over here, I doubt if God ever hears it. Because if we don't offer praise with clean hands, it doesn't get out of the room. It might bring us to our feet, but that's as far as it goes. Over here's a person whose heart is clean, and they're in love with God, and they offer their praise. And God is looking at that, and he's saying, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So how do you get yourself in the place of being a beautiful praiser? (laughs) Keep your heart right. It really isn't important about your voice when it comes to God. Now, I'm not making a case for lousy music. (laughs) You already know that. What I am making a case for is the people who stand in this choir and sing on this platform better have more going on in their life than just a voice. They better have something going on in their heart with God, because God won't honor it if it isn't that way. We're to praise Him obediently, praise Him beautifully. Notice it says we're to praise Him musically. Notice what it says, praise the Lord, verse 2, with the harp, make melody to Him with an instrument of ten strings. And this is the first time in the Psalms that the musical instruments are mentioned as being used in worship. It's reflective of the kind of worship that took place in the Old Testament. In fact, in the book of Nehemiah, we are told that at the time of the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites came from all their places and they brought to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication of the wall with gladness, both with thanksgivings and singing, and with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. They had an orchestra. They had an orchestra like ours. We have different instruments, but the harps weren't harps like you look at in pictures of heaven. These were guitars. Can you imagine? Guitars. And they had cymbals, clanging cymbals. And they had drums, and they had all these instruments, and they lifted their voice in praise to God musically. They praised the Lord obediently. They praised the Lord musically. They praised the Lord beautifully. Now notice verse 3, praise the Lord creatively. This is a great word. Sing to him a new song. I don't like the new songs. (laughs) Well, what does it say? Well, pastor, I'm sure it doesn't mean what it says. There's got to be some explanation. Well, I'll tell you what. I went and I did the homework on this thing. I'm going to tell you what it means. You know what it means? It means saying to the Lord a new song. That's what it means. I know some musicians have appealed to this verse as justification for all the new kinds of music that have flooded the church in recent years. What does the psalmist really mean by a new song? I believe it means that every song of worship should come from the freshness of our hearts. It should be the kind. It should be a newness to it for us. That's certainly true. Every song should reflect our moment by moment appreciation for the grace of God in our lives. Many scholars have weighed in on this phrase. Leupold says, "A song which springs freshly from a thankful and rejoicing heart." Craigie says, the ever-new freshness of the praise of God. Alexander McLaren adds, there's always room for a fresh voice to praise the old gospel. But if you look at the text itself and look up the phrase, the word for a new song in the original text suggests a song that's never been heard before, a new one. Now, i got to tell you something, friends. I love the hymns. We cherish the hymns here. But all of the great praise to God has not been written already. Some of it's being written right now. Some of it will be written after we're gone, if the Lord tarries. The old hymns are great. We sing them in our church every week, and we love them. But we sing some new songs, too. And these songs come with a freshness of our own culture that couldn't have been sung back in the Old Testament or New Testament times because they didn't live where we live and as we live. These songs come out of our hearts. These are new songs we offer to God. And some of them are good, and some of them aren't so good. And we have to be very selective. Sometimes we go through 50 or 60 praise songs before we choose one that we feel is worthy to be praising the Lord in our church because it's centered on the Word. Some of these songs are just little snippets and don't have anything to say. Somebody called them 7-Eleven songs, seven phrases sung 11 times in a row. I don't know if this is right or not. But what I am saying is this. There is a place for a new song. Can I get a witness? There's a place for us to sing songs that are new, that are created, and all of us ought to be creating songs in our own heart. We'll never get them published, probably, but I was so challenged when we were studying the life of John Newton, he wrote a hymn almost every week to go along with a sermon. It would take me a year to write one hymn, but I'm going to try it. I love to be able to write something that could be set to music as a word of praise to the Lord just for my own benefit, for my own joy. And frankly, all of us do that anyway. We sing to the Lord sometimes. We don't even know where the melody came from, where the words came from. Sing a new song. Be creative in your praise. Don't get stuck in the rut of just doing the same. That's why I don't think that reciting the same thing over and over again, just getting into the routine. I like liturgy, but liturgy can sometimes become monotony. And then the freshness of it all is gone. Praise the Lord creatively. Then notice it says, praise the Lord skillfully. That's an interesting thought. Verse 3, play skillfully. What needs to be added to this? God expects our best. We should not offer him anything but our best. To offer praise and thanksgiving skillfully is the goal of every godly musician. Not for the applause of men, but for the glory of the maker. What we do here, we try to do with excellence. We don't always do it perfectly. We play notes that aren't in tune, and we sing sometimes off key. But it's not because of lack of effort on our part. We do our best to offer to God a sacrifice that is excellent. In the book of Hebrews, it says that our praise is the sacrifice of ourselves to God, and it's the fruit of our lips, and God wants it to be pleasing. Now, let's set that back in the Old Testament. When they brought their animals to the temple as a sacrifice, the Bible required that they bring the best of the flock without spot or blemish. They didn't go find the almost dead animal and drag it into the temple. If they did, the book of Malachi scored them for that. If our worship and praise is our music, what does that say? It says what we bring to the Lord ought to be the best we have. We ought to offer up to him everything we have. We ought to work hard to make sure that our praise and worship is excellent, that we do it skillfully. And that means that not all of us are going to be in the choir. Not all of us are going to be in the orchestra. I know I grew up in a mentality of churches where if you wanted to sing, you could. If you wanted to sing a solo, you could. And we spent a lot of time in our churches with our heads bowed, and we weren't praying, I promise you. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? No, God wants the best we have to offer whether it's in our music or whatever it might be. And then finally, notice, praise the Lord joyfully. Verse 3, with a shout of joy. Say that, with a shout of joy. Oh, no, say it right, with a shout of joy. Did you know it's hard to praise God joyfully, quietly. You can't. I mean, you strip your gears when you do that. It's like having one foot on the brake and the other on the accelerator. You want to be joyful, but you can't let it out. We go to ball games, and when you go down there, and if they play well, you're going to come out of your seat. You're not going to sit there. You're not going to say. You're going to turn to your neighbor and say, "Boy, that was really a nice play." <laughs> you know what happens? I know what happens because I go sometimes. You you jump up and you glad hand people you've never met before. You give them a high five. You jump around. Like, I mean, I'm not talking about doing that in church. I'm just saying the exuberance of our praise for human things needs to be carried over into the exuberance of our praise to God. Now, we have some great contemplative praise, and we have some praise where we just let it all out. Man, I love to do that. I love to just give my everything to God in praising and worshiping him. So I want you to think about these things, to praise the Lord like this, obediently and beautifully. Praise him musically and creatively. Praise him joyfully because he's worthy. He's worthy. Amen. He's worthy. Now, when you get to the end of the psalm, and I'm just going to give you this and we'll close our Bibles. We started out by saying that people who aren't grateful aren't happy. People who aren't grateful, when they have more and more, they just gripe more and more. Notice what happens in verse 20 and following. Here are the results of praise and thanksgiving. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our hearts shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Let me just give you three words, three things that happen when you praise the Lord joyfully and obediently and beautifully. You get help, you get happiness, and you get hope. Those are pretty good things, aren't they? Notice what it says. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our heart shall rejoice in him and we'll be happy. And your mercy, O Lord, will be upon us just as we hope in you. Praise and worship and gratitude to the Lord will take you out of the doldrums It'll give you the help you need, the happiness you're looking for, and the hope that all of us live on. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, um, I hope you've been encouraged during the month of February. Um, this is a great month. It's my birthday month. It's a, the it's a birthday month of a lot of people that you have read about. Something special about February, and we hope it's been an encouraging month for you. We are in this together, friends. We're a part of God's family. God hasn't abandoned us. He knows what's going on in our lives, the challenges we're facing, the new things we've never faced before. All of those God knows. And uh, we've tried to encourage you during this month to trust in him and, more recently, to praise him for all the good things that he has brought into your life. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. That's what the Word of God says. We are the receivers of every good thing God offers. Friends, before we say our final goodbye today, let me remind you that this is Friday, and you need to make plans to be in church on the Lord's Day, if you can be. And certainly find a way to watch Turning Point on television. We're pretty much around the country now, and if it's during your church time, record it, watch it when you get home. Don't stay home to watch it. That's not our purpose. You need to be in church for your sake, for the sake of your pastor and others who are counting on you and your presence for encouragement. And we'll be back here on Monday. Uh, And Monday, we're going to begin a series on fear. What are you afraid of is the series. You'll want to join us then. Till then, this is David Jeremiah. Have a great weekend.
1: The message you just heard came to you from Shadow Mountain Community Church, where Dr. David Jeremiah serves as senior pastor. How is God using Turning Point in your life? Write us at Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, Delta, B.C., V4L2M4. Visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or call 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of Robert J. Morgan's Book of Comfort and Encouragement. God works all things together for your good. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app for your smartphone or tablet. Or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries to access our programs and resources. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as we begin the series, What Are You Afraid Of? here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Have you ever wondered what your legacy will be? The Jeremiah Legacy Society from Turning Point was created for friends of the ministry who feel called to partner with Dr. David Jeremiah to deliver the unchanging Word of God to future generations. We can ensure that the impact we have reaches beyond our days here on earth. Visit our website at davidjeremiahgift.org to learn more about how you can be a part of the Jeremiah Legacy Society. If you've enjoyed today's program with Dr. David Jeremiah, you might be interested in hearing it again at your convenience. Stay connected to Turning Point by visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca or by downloading our free Canadian mobile app. The app can be found by searching for Turning Point Canada on your smart device app store. Create an account and order digital resources from today's program with easy one-click checkout at davidjeremiah.ca. Dear friend, I'm Dr. David Jeremiah, and I'd like to take a moment to speak with you
0: as the world faces the coronavirus pandemic. There is no question we are living in a time of unprecedented uncertainty. It is unlike anything I have experienced in my whole life. And the temptation in times like these is to allow fear and worry to creep into our thoughts and to rob us of our joy. But in these uncertain times, we need to remember that God is still in control. And my prayer for you is that you are healthy, you're in a safe place, and surrounded by those you love. Please keep the ministry of Turning Point in your prayers as well. We will continue to bring the healing power of God's Word to you each day on radio, television, and online. And I really hope this will be a source of encouragement to you during the current coronavirus. So be safe, be in the Word, and be in prayer.